Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Docket Talk. First, I want to say a little bit about myself. My name is Selena Riverneider. I'm a journalism and legal studies dual degree at UMass Amherst. I'm a junior, which means I've just started looking into law schools because someday I'd like to be a lawyer. In a lot of my legal studies classes, we talk about the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, obviously, we talk about the Supreme Court. But what's interesting is that a lot of us go into these classes without much prior knowledge of the Supreme Court. Not of the cases that they hear and not of the justices. But the Supreme Court, as we've learned, is very important to our everyday lives. And honestly, I don't blame most people for not being that interested in what the Supreme Court does. Frankly, it's really complicated and accessible and kind of boring. There's a lot of legal jargon, and often it's really hard to understand what the ideologies of the judges are because... It's not like politicians. It's normally not so black and white as Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal. Legal ideologies, while similar, are not the same thing as political ideologies. And that's not something that the average American really focuses on. In my legal studies classes, we talked a lot about which Supreme Court cases affected things like women's rights. You think of the Supreme Court as this excellent representation of justice, but they can perpetuate some of the worst parts of American society. And if a politician were to make a decision that greatly affected a minority group's rights, I think it would show up a lot more in the mainstream media and on the minds of the American people. But the thing is, what the Supreme Court justices decide can become a law just in the same way that what the politicians decide can become laws. So... Why do we not pay attention to the Supreme Court? Judges have lifetime appointments. And key word there, they're appointed. They're not elected. So yeah, you get to choose the politicians who are making the laws, but you don't get to choose the judges. They're appointed by the president. So if the president that you didn't vote for gets elected, you may not feel represented by your Supreme Court. Because they have a lifetime appointment, it could be decades of their decisions and their ideology setting the precedent for how law is interpreted in America. And their decisions affect your everyday life. Their interpretation of the law affects things that you would think are really, really personal decisions. Who you can marry, the decisions you make regarding your own pregnancy, how you pay for your health care, and who is allowed into the country. And because we live in a democracy that relies on checks and balances, it's really important to make sure that each branch of the government is actually able to carry out checks and balances. The first episode in the series is the lineup. I'm not yet going to talk about any of the cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear this term. First, I'm going to talk about the justices themselves. 
These are the people who are making the decisions about how law in America is interpreted. First, there's the Chief Justice of the United States, John G. Roberts Jr. Because he's Chief Justice, he can choose who writes the majority opinion when he sides with the majority. This means that he can decide what the ruling does or does not affect, meaning he decides the scope of the decision and just how many aspects of American society it will affect. He's 66 years old. And you'll notice that I mention the age of every justice when I talk about them. This is because, again, they have lifetime appointments. So how old they are right now and how old they were when they were nominated matters. He was nominated by President George W. Bush, and he took his seat on September 29, 2005. The entirety of his higher education was at Harvard, and one of his former jobs was the associate counsel to President Ronald Reagan. Ideologically, Roberts practices judicial restraint. That means that, in his opinion, judges should only interpret the laws, not create them. Judicial restraint emphasizes leaving the decisions to be made by existing structures in the government, like the legislative branch. A lot of times you'll hear the metaphor that judicial restraint means that judges should be like the umpires in a baseball game, not the players. And something to keep in mind in the current political climate that's going on in the background of this year's Supreme Court term, Roberts isn't as popular with conservative Americans as he used to be, in part because he upheld the Affordable Care Act in King versus Burwell. Up next, we have Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. He's 73 years old, a President Bush nominee, and he took his seat on October 23, 1991. He was educated at the College of the Holy Cross and Yale Law School. He's the second black justice and the only black justice currently sitting on the bench. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate in the legal world about whether or not, well, I say scholarly, there's just a lot of debate, period, about whether or not people's racial, gender, what have you, whether their identity affects how they make decisions as a judge. And honestly, I don't think I could say either way. And for me, it's hard to tell with Clarence Thomas especially. He's known as the silent justice because he rarely speaks during hearings. And I should also mention the controversy surrounding Thomas's appointment and Anita Hill. Thomas worked at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for eight years. Anita Hill worked there at the same time as him, and she accused him of sexual harassment. Before the accusations became widely known to the public, the FBI did investigate but their report was inconclusive. After the accusation was leaked to the press, the Senate was under a lot of public pressure, particularly among women's rights groups, to investigate further. Anita Hill then testified in front of the Senate. Thomas denied all the allegations. Thomas is conservative, and he practices the ideology of originalism, meaning the Constitution should be interpreted based on how it was understood at the time it was adopted, meaning the late 1700s by the founding fathers. Next, we have Associate Justice Samuel Alito. He's 71 years old. He was nominated by George W. Bush, and he took his seat on January 31st, 2006. What's interesting about Alito's ideology is, while he is conservative, he emphasizes making his decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. We know that he's conservative because even though he is making those decisions supposedly on a case-by-case -case basis, he often aligns with the other conservative members of the court. But an example that goes against this is Snyder v. Phelps, which was a First Amendment case in which the Westboro Baptist Church uh, was trying to defend their practice of... Um, 
protest, not protesting, I wouldn't even call it that, would hold up signs outside of military funerals with inflammatory language, often hateful towards gay people. And in this case, eight justices upheld the protection of free speech, meaning that Westboro Baptist Church had the right under the First Amendment to hold those signs outside of military funerals, which is generally a more conservative belief. But Alito argued in the dissent that the emotional distress that the picketing caused actually outweighed the right to free speech. On the flip side, though, um, in 2014, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, Alito wrote the majority decision, which basically said uh, businesses can be exempt from laws that required uh, corporations to provide uh contraceptive coverage and health insurance if it was a family-owned business. His reasoning was this would infringe on the religious rights of the owners um, if contraception was against their religion. Next is Associate Justice Stephen G. Breyer. He's 83 years old a President Clinton nominee, and he took his seat on August 3, 1994. He's been educated at Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard. You'll notice a trend here. Supreme Court justices attend very elite institutions. Prior to being a Supreme Court justice, Breyer was an assistant special prosecutor of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force in 1973. Ideologically, Breyer is considered pragmatic, which means he opposes originalism and other strict ideologies. He instead focuses on how the decisions made by SCOTUS will affect people's lives. He also tends to defer to decisions made by the legislature, but he still primarily focuses on the real-world effect of the decisions. Next is Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She's 67 years old and was nominated by President Obama. She took her seat on August 8, 2009. She was educated at Princeton and Yale, and she's the first Hispanic person on the bench. Sotomayor is liberal, which emphasizes the consent of the governed and equality before the law. She's known for her trust in the judicial process and how sharp she can be, especially towards unprepared lawyers, but also very kind towards those who work hard to advocate for their clients. Justice Elena Kagan is 61 years old. She was Princeton, Oxford, and Harvard educated. Prior to being a Supreme Court justice, she served as an associate counsel to President Clinton and later as the deputy assistant for domestic policy. She was nominated by President Obama and took her seat on August 7, 2010. Kagan is the youngest sitting justice and the only sitting justice with no prior judicial experience. She's pragmatic, similar to Breyer, which as a reminder, means she focuses on the real-world application and effects of the law. She also emphasizes the importance of the consensus of the court. So she doesn't often write concurring opinions. And yes, she does really emphasize the consensus. In her confirmation hearings, she stated that she didn't believe that same-sex marriage was a federal and constitutional right, but she aligned with the majority in Obergefell v. Hodges, which is the case where the Supreme Court declared that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right. It'll be interesting this term to see where Kagan aligns with the majority, even if it goes against her previously stated beliefs. 
Associate Justice Neil M. Gorsuch is 54 years old. He was educated at Columbia, Harvard, and Oxford, and he was one of Donald Trump's many nominees during his presidency. He took his seat on April 10, 2017. Ideologically, he aligns with originalism and textualism, originalism being the belief that the Constitution should be interpreted the way that it was understood when it was written, and textualism means that the context of history or what Congress may have intended when creating the law isn't as important as the actual meaning of the words in the law, meaning the actual, like, dictionary definition of the words that are in the law. He's also known for his favor of state power over federal power. Associate Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh is 56 years old and Yale-educated. He's another Trump nominee, and he took his seat on October 6, 2018. Like Thomas, Kavanaugh also had controversy surrounding his hearings. Christine Blasey Ford came forward and alleged that Kavanaugh assaulted her at a party when she was 15 years old. The hearing was, in my opinion, a bit of a media circus, and... Kavanaugh adamantly denied the allegations. But despite this controversy, Kavanaugh still took his seat in October. Now, Kavanaugh's ideology, it's a little hard to tell. He's conservative, but the SCOTUS is so overwhelmingly conservative right now, he appears to be centrist compared to the other justices. That also means that this term is going to be big for Kavanaugh to define himself ideologically compared to the other justices and in his role as a Supreme Court justice. have Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She's 49 years old, Rhodes College and Notre Dame educated. She's another Trump nominee, and she took her seat on October 27, 2020. There was also controversy with Barrett's nomination. She was nominated after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away only a week prior, and this was within weeks of the 2020 election. This is controversial for two reasons. The first being that it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish that her replacement was not going to be nominated until after the 2020 election. Also, Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett was supported by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. During Obama's time in office, he nominated Merrick Garland, but McConnell refused to hold a hearing because he decided it was too close to the election, which was still months away. As a result, the Democrats boycotted the vote that ultimately placed Amy Coney Barrett into the Supreme Court. Similar to Kavanaugh, it's hard to tell what her ideology is. Obviously, we know that she's more conservative than RBG, who she replaced. The data journalism organization 538 compiled data from her time as a judge on the Seventh Circuit, and she was one of the most conservative judges. But it will be interesting to see how that reflects into her behavior on the Supreme Court, especially when you keep in mind that this is a majority conservative court. There's been some debate about whether or not judges who are normally more conservative will lean to the left in an attempt to balance out the court. It's always hard to tell because they are given lifetime appointments. They're not supposed to have any political pressure on them, but they're nominated by the president, right? And they do have approval ratings. And the approval rating, I mean, they're not running for re-election, but you can't tell me they're not aware of it. And I'm especially curious to see how the Trump nominees behave this term. Because something that was unique about Donald Trump's presidency was this culture of 
loyalty, meaning being loyal to President Trump and his political ideology. Generally, Supreme Court justices are supposed to make their decisions pretty independently based off of their own legal ideology. They're not supposed to be subject to political pressures. But obviously, that's not a trend with the Trump organization. Even after he was replaced by Joe Biden, he still has political sway. So I'm going to recommend keeping an eye on a couple things this term. First, how the Trump nominees react. I want to see if they align with either what the supposed or actual expectations of Trump are for their behavior and for their decisions from when he nominated them, or if they'll stick with their own legal ideology, meaning their decisions pretty much go either way. And I'm curious to see what Roberts does as the chief justice, um, if he takes on any responsibility to try to sway the court closer to the median uh, ideologically, meaning a bit more middle of the road, uh, a bit less conservative. That depends because he does have a lower approval rating with conservative Americans uh, than he used to. And that came from his decision in which he interpreted the law in a way that didn't align with conservative ideals. I'd also be curious to see what justices like Sotomayor and Breyer uh, do to balance out the conservative side of the court. I mean, numerically, they're outnumbered. Um, but I'm curious to see what kind of dissenting opinions we get from them. A conservative court is more likely to make conservative decisions. The more liberal members of the court are more likely to dissent on those decisions. And for people who aren't really familiar with that terminology, I'm still learning it too as we go. I'm, I'm a student. Dissent, it's basically the judges explaining or the justices explaining why they disagree with the decision. Of course, their disagreement doesn't change the precedent or the law that's been set from that case, from that decision, because it's been decided against their beliefs. But they do have the opportunity to explain why with the way that that decision was made. Also, frankly, I don't think this would necessarily happen because it is a conservative court and Thomas is conservative. I'm curious to see if this guy has anything to say. And I'm also curious to see how Roberts uses his ability to choose who writes the majority opinion. I'm wondering if he would side with the majority to choose himself as the person who writes the majority opinion, even if he doesn't necessarily agree with the majority in sort of a way to mitigate the impact of a conservative court because he gets to decide how broad that ruling is applied. But I guess something that I really want to emphasize here is that Conservative and liberal justices, it's not the same thing as conservative and liberal politicians. It often really depends on the case and how specifically the judges tend to interpret the law rather than like what they believe ideologically in terms of being conservative or being liberal. So that's why I made the lineup the first episode. We're not going to know exactly how these justices are going to behave this term. We can only speculate, but we can go into each case knowing how these justices interpret the law. So politics and public pressure aside, we know that Roberts practices judicial restraint and Thomas practices originalism. The issue with, uh, conservative and liberal ideology is they're not perfect because even with years of 
watching justices make decisions, they can still surprise us. We can speculate based off of how we know they tend to interpret the law. Uh, we know that this is a conservative majority court with some politically scandalous, recently nominated justices who will be looking to establish themselves. Another thing to look out for is how politics play the role. Like I said, do Kavanaugh and Barrett lean to the right to favor Trump voters because Trump appointed them? Excuse me, Trump nominated them? Or do they follow their own legally focused ideologies? And if they do follow their own ideologies, politics aside, are they going to land on the scale of conservative and liberal in the way that we expect? This is something that I'm going to be coming back to as we get into later episodes and the decisions for different cases start coming in. I'm going to compare and contrast how the judges behaved on those cases to what I predicted here today. Also, when I get into the cases, I'm going to go into how we, as, you know, everyday citizens without law degrees, um, who aren't judges or lawyers or politicians, how we can understand the decisions that are made and also what's at stake when these decisions are being made. A lot of the time, it gets lost in the jargon. And when you read specifically what the judges are supposed to decide in a particular case, that doesn't necessarily include the social impact of their decisions. But just because it's not widely known doesn't mean that these decisions will not have massive social impact. In addition to that, because there are a lot of younger justices on the court now, the better we can understand how they make their decisions, the better we can understand how the next few decades are gonna look for the American public. In the next episode, I'm gonna dive into the cases that have already been argued before the court, because there have been a couple, and what they might mean for Americans, and how I think they might be decided. Again, my name is Selena Riverneider. I'm super excited to be starting this podcast. And because it's a new podcast, I am very open to feedback. You can find me on social media and feel free to message me with questions, comments, concerns, compliments, hopefully. We always love compliments. The sources that I used today were the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov, oye.org, npr.org, scotusblog.com, and 538.com. Specific links will be in the show notes. And you can find me on social media at C Riverniter on Twitter, Selena Riverniter on YouTube, at Selena Riverniter on Instagram. I also have other work on the Amherst Wire website, amherstwire.com, so you can feel free to check me out there. Again, feel free to leave a comment under this podcast on the Amherst Wire website, amherstwire.com, or to message me directly on social media. Thanks for listening.